Hello and welcome to this week's Stats Bomb Podcast with me, James York, and Ted Knudsen. How goes it, Ted? I'm not sick. Everybody else in and around the family is sick. You've been sick. It's all good, though, you know. It's, I've still uh, got the, you know, days on, I've still got the remnants of it, but we'll battle on regardless, bravely. Exciting transfer season. I think that's what we're we're in right now, James. It's upon us, and you went and asked for questions, like we didn't have enough to talk about. And, well, because uh, it was the FA Cup, and we don't really <laughs> like to talk about the FA Cup, because so, it's uh, easy. I didn't watch hardly any FA Cup, actually, to be honest. I treated it like a uh, like an international break. Someone else said that. It feels like an James. Break. Oh my God! You're part of the problem. Like you're English, <laughs> not watching the FA Cup. What is wrong uh, with you? Well, it's just mm, shrug. That's all I can say to it. It's changed. It used to be the biggest thing in the world. Ted back when I was a lad, but it's not anymore. It's not, and that's just that. Right. Anyway, we're gonna, yeah, we've got transfer to talk about and, and some questions. So a few things going on. We're gonna, we're gonna start with Chelsea. Seems that there's gonna be a hell of a lot of noise around transfers at Chelsea. Um, As there probably should be, right? Like the two teams that you would expect there to be a lot of noise around transfers would be Chelsea and Spurs. <laughs> yeah, good one. Anyway, <laughs> but for certainly Chelsea, uh, with um, things things happening, yeah, the idea that uh, the manager might want slightly different personnel to those he inherited, and they ju- they're just at the stage, aren't they, where they, it feels like they've got a, a bit of a few players to turn over. Like Fabregas, great example. Looks like he's probably going to Monaco. Um, Actually, that was one of our questions. We can answer that quick. Think, so, think Sesk still has enough source to save Henri at Monaco? Wow. What do you I think, think the underlying numbers suggest that Henri should be safe at Monaco. But yeah. he inherited a team that was like dramatically underperforming those with Jardim. Um, and I don't know. So this is the thing that you never know. You don't know what's happening behind the scenes. So like, were people tired of dealing with Jardim? Jardim had been there before Emanalo. Emanalo comes in. Like, You don't know what that relationship is like. Uh, so he's gone, and then Henri comes in, and Henri, obviously a challenging personality, uh, used to being a world-class player, playing in world-class teams, and then he went to the U.S. for a while, basically on a, on a long-term holiday retirement, very well paid. Um, so the question becomes, like, what do we expect from Monaco, who we know are actually really talented? They didn't get rid of all their talent. They have a lot of good talent, but are not performing at the level that you would remotely expect. They're in that stage where they basically, you know, they... they they shouldn't get relegated and then they're just going to have to think right what we're going to do in the summer and, and I guess evaluate where they feel like they're at with Henri because he hasn't had an electric start Fabregas surely is fine for I mean Fabregas in a, in a French relegation fight I, I think that's fine <laughs> I think that's more they're than they're going to need to cover there. for his legs hmm uh, because like you know, Sesk legs are not what they once were. He he definitely does not have the the ability to to move up and down the pitch at, at pace and and like, cover the space that you might want him to. But what he does have the ability to do and it kind of has always had the ability is to unlock defenses. So mm. you know you look at at Monaco, they've only scored sixteen goals. Uh, we would say in past years they dramatically overperformed their expected goals. Now they're you know pretty strongly underperforming. Um, but yeah, he's gonna he's gonna help them score more goals, um, and then they just need to make sure that they can cover for for him defensively. I think Monaco should be fine. We've seen stranger things happen, but should be fine. Just to mention Sesk anyway. I mean, there's been a few tributes about the place to his time in the Premier League. <laughs> People saying he's not an Arsenal legend or a Chelsea legend, but he's a Premier League legend. He's one of your favourites. I well well know that. I think I think some of the some of the analysis has kind of missed the point. He's had he's had different stages to his career. Like you know the the kind of explosive midfielder that he was in his early days. Um, I I wouldn't under underrate his his latter years uh, or certainly certainly the, his 
role in the the fourteen fifteen title, where basically they signed him and Cot Mourinho signed him and Costa, and he got like eighteen assists that season, kind yeah. of play, pinging it from deep. And it's like this is a very different set from the one that we had, you know, as as a kid, but no. Nonetheless, equally devastating in in creating chances, and he's been consistently throughout, even you know on his return, um, you know in his latter years, has still been a guy that has has put up really decent numbers and created so many chances, and you know he's been out of the team recent in recent you know the last year or so, but I I wouldn't I wouldn't downplay his influence in his in his latter career as I think one or two people have. His his early period at Arsenal was outrageous. Mm. Uh, he just he just was. He was he was able to do absolutely everything on the pitch. Uh, was made you know he's kind of a high usage player because he he was able to do that. So like you know the ball very much went through him um, from his teenage years into his into his early twenties. Um, had a little bit of problems with some some injury stuff. Like Wenger had issues with playing really talented young players too much and sort of rushing them back sometimes because they didn't have the depth. Uh, they didn't have the money to to have the depth in a lot of those years. Uh, but his his early period at, at Arsenal, he was a breathtaking player, like, absolutely exquisite. Um, and then he went to Barcelona, and there was this kind of idea that he was going to be like the next Xavi, which he had a different set of skills. Um, you know, he wasn't just that deep lying pinging passes from um, you know deeper midfield but this is a guy that actually very much subsumed a lot of his own desires and personalities to play the roles that his managers wanted him to play so he goes to Barcelona and he, he fits in a couple of different places for Pep and Pep at one point had him as like a false nine which like I would never say that he has the pace <laughs> to play that, that role it, it seems honestly it seems insane now to think that like you know anyone thought that that would be his role it's because you know how he evolved you know kind of dropped back through the team over time it's it seems wild to think that but yeah, i mean the the weirdest part about him i think is is all the goals that he scored because when you look at those types of players like a david silva mesut ozil like those amazing creators they almost never contribute as high a number of goals and and sesk did that and that's the thing that that sort of really sets him apart but then as he as he, you know his body caught a, kind of ca- caught up to him um, you know, he continued to move a bit deeper. You know, there was the frustration that at Barcelona that he was never realizing his potential. I think people just didn't understand his potential and, and what he could do versus what they wanted him to do. But then he comes to Chelsea, and I actually worked a bit on doing the prep work um, for a lot of um, for the agent side of that um, to to be able to to you know, bring him back and and you know where was his next thing because he was clearly leaving Barcelona, and it was very painful for me to to see him go blue on one side, but on the other side, he got to come back to the Premier League and I was really excited about it. I, I was just genuinely one of my favorite players. Um, he's absolutely an Arsenal legend, but he won two titles at Chelsea in a different role than he had played previously. He is absolutely one of the best attacking passers that we have seen um, in his career span. He just is. And, and you know, you can, you can disrespect that all you want to, but there's almost nobody around that's like him. And his, his title successes, you know, almost speak for themselves. And he also was the, the person that drug Arsenal close a number of times um, as, Arsenal, as Arsenal's reign was really, like, the good years anyway, were, were winding down. Yeah. All, all hail Cesc Fabregas, who's um, probably... I mean, you got, yeah, he won... He won stuff with it with his country as well he's, he's won it all in one yeah. way or another <laughs> he's won a lot <laughs> so, the only thing he didn't win was a uh, was a champions league uh he, he was in a final with arsenal and then he was did well with barcelona but they didn't win 
I think while he was there. Uh, but beyond that, you know, he, he got to the cusp. And if we're really going to criticize him for not winning a knockout tournament, <laughs> it seems a bit harsh. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? One of those, one of those little quirks. But yeah, otherwise, uh, a, a fine career and uh, long may it continue. Uh, hopefully at Monaco, well, it looks like. Right, let's move on. Um, Hang on. Uh, so, yeah, we'll move on from, from Susk, but uh, still talking about rumours, right? Oh, yeah, and Chelsea in general, because there's all sorts of rumours going on like, up front. Talk of talk of Morata maybe going back to Spain. Talk he's of clearly out of favour. It hasn't. It's not really working out, is it? I mean, um, talk of Higuain replacing him, and then talk of Tammy Abraham kind of stopping in, punching his card, and then zooming off to Wolves. So that's that's like <laughs> a, a little kind of microcosm of. Chelsea rumours all, all in one. Any of those you want to address? Well, it's so weird, right? I mean, like, they clearly should have Abraham in the squad. I just, I, I don't understand it. Like, what do you think that this player does or does not do that you wouldn't have him as at least the third striker on a regular basis? I don't know. And then you're looking at, at uh, you're more solving Juventus's Iguain problem more mm. so than, than Milan's Iguain problem because Milan just have him on loan. And I think they potentially could make him permanent, but like Juventus don't want his wages. They, I, I think they would actually run into serious issues wage-wise if they had Iguain back and also had to pay for Ronaldo and everything else on top of that. So the question, like, you know, where do where does an Iguain potentially go if Milan no longer want him around? Um, and he struggled a bit there. Um, and Iguain now is not the same player that he was two years ago. And if if Chelsea fans believe that, they would be in for a very rude surprise. Um, so yeah, I'm. We think that Chelsea need players. Um, in certain positions, the, none of these quite fit that. Although it's always fun to talk about strikers, um, and I think Chelsea's strategy from player movement and player recruitment is always confusing to me. At least these days, they've done it with strikers before. Even go, you know, going back historically, when people like uh, Crespo and Etu and um, Shevchenko, yeah, all the yeah, all these kind of like you know fabled strikers turned up in their in their dotage and scored a goal or two or whatever. But yeah. You, I can you can you can understand it, can't you? I mean, Giroud, for all the fact that he's you know won a World Cup and, and got some got some good props at the end of his career, and is a useful kind of number two guy. Morata, who who you know hasn't set the world on fire, um, he, it's it just it doesn't seem to be a player that has has ever really fitted wherever he's ended up, and it, can't can't tell you why that is, but you can understand why Chelsea. Of you know, of all clubs would want just a, a number one tier guy as their main striker, and it feels like they, for one reason or another, they haven't quite achieved that. But it does beg the question: where is the, <clears throat> you know, someone, uh, someone of Murat more akin to Murata's age rather than you know a thirty. 31 year old kind of Higuain to, to fit that role it's or if they're going to play Hazard as a false nine then you want scoring wide forwards which they definitely don't have right now like Pedro, Pedro and Willian are definitely they're, they're the type of guys that would be sort of squad backups and um, you know the depth players they're they're like the the <laughs> the poor man's version of uh, of Ribery and Robin <laughs> to some extent you bring them in to to cycle guys out but you want elite wide forwards they they probably think that Pulisic might feel that they need another one certainly um or you know they need to play Callan Hudson-Odoi more and see see how good he's going to be um that's 
we talked a little bit, I think, on the last podcast as to whether or not English clubs are really bad about undervaluing their own academy players. Um, you know, you need to find out more about whether they're good at some point. You need to not just ship them out on eternal loan. But the manager has to feel like he can play them without you know getting fired or, or running into big problems. So it's complicated. Sorry, I think sorry in particular has has been very kind of. Um, kind of rigid with the players that he's used particularly in the league in the Champions League this season he hasn't varied it very much at all and has you know kind of kept to a really small core of players um, that he seems to obviously value as his his first team but you know there's even players like Emerson at at left back who's you know at one point was looking extremely talented who's just got you know basically the League Cup minutes this season and you think you know they've got players like that dotted around the squad uh, Loftus Cheek, another one who's you know probably frustrated is like his lack of kind of starting time, at least in in uh, you know high value matches. Um, it's yeah, it's an odd odd place for Chelsea to kind of um, rejig their squad on on the fly and kind of keep this. No, they haven't. They've got they've got a kind of I don't know six or eight backups that aren't getting as much time as they probably like. Plus the lone army, which you know will be resolved in some in some regard. Yeah, and yeah, the idea that they might go out and buy another striker on top of well, this, this is a long-term problem for them. Like they, the spin-offs from Chelsea's either loan army or own academy that have gone on to be elite players is significant, right? Like if they had kept them, they would have quite a number of very amazing players in and around their squad. And the other issue that is also a long-term problem is they keep getting managers who will play a small squad. Like they don't incorporate the the youth that is around even when they have them not on loan. So like you never really find out. But I mean, I guess they don't care. I, it's it's hard to say. the The good thing for Chelsea is like they can sell you know three, four, five players and raise enough to to buy the equivalent of. Uh, yeah, basically a, a Neymar if they wanted to. It doesn't. They've got so many assets on the book, but asset mismanagement is another issue for them because they just never end up. They end up overpaying for what they do get because you know, Salah is not on their squad. Uh, Lukaku they got you know some good chunk of money for, but not what what Everton got. Um, De Bruyne, uh, like how how many of them are there? And then when they find good ones, they don't. Uh, you know, presumably Emerson is supposed to be pretty good. He was good at Roma. I have no idea, but it's a it's a weird, frustrating problem for them. You understand how Sari needs to build his squad and and needs to have some input. The the rumors at the moment aren't the ones that you would expect because you're looking at at nines as opposed to the the areas that we think they have more issues on. And um, you know their best young young goal scorer that you would think you would want to potentially give a chance for this. It's like ah, we're going to bring him back from Aston Villa and ship him off to Wolves. <laughs> yeah, I mean. I guess the the problem is as, as Chelsea manager, you, there's no, you never get that season. You never get that right. Let's let's kind of try a few things out. Season. You this know, should have been that season. <laughs> well, I mean, and it kind of is in some ways because they're not they're not challenging for the title. I mean, they they should be safely ensconced in the top four. You'd well, imagine. probabilistically, we would say that they're definitely one of the the top three to four teams, right? Like looking mm, at, at yep. the struggles that Arsenal and and United have had. But you know, Arsenal are only three points back. United are only only six points back. Only um, this should be that that time, and we'll see. But I guess last year they missed out on Champions League, so they're pushing for it. It's just weird. Like they, 
what's the plan? How are they executing? We ask this all the time. It's not just about Chelsea. It's about a lot of clubs. But the manager lifespan at Chelsea is one, two years, basically. And it looks like Sarri's going to get, which is the right thing, you know, that he's going to get a little bit of grace here. Unless his second half of the season completely fell in a hole and everything went wrong. He should be able to finish fourth and get next season and another win transfer windows worth of players and you know progress from there because it would be insane otherwise you know you've changed your entire style of play uh, you brought in a manager who's going to do something completely different to what you've done before you might as well uh, give them some time but if Chelsea are in this position next season with two or three new players and they're still just kind of like third fourth not really anywhere near the title then Sarri's job will become under threat because that's the Chelsea way. If you're not contending for, you know, the top um, prizes, then as Chelsea manager, then you're underperforming. And so, yeah, who knows where it ends up? This is in opposition to Liverpool, who didn't necessarily have a great early run under Klopp, had to spend a lot of time revamping their squad, had to kind of like discuss ideas and how to improve the whole team as a whole. Um, they needed him to work on set pieces more, which they've done to an elite level this year. And uh, it's probably, it's almost certainly one of the reasons that they're leading the league because of this extra little gap that they've got on Manchester City. If you change managers every two years, you have no ability to do that. But you also need to have vision from the top down as to this is what needs to happen and this is how we're going to go about it. Yeah. Um, so I mean that's that's kind of transfers, but it's also transfers and wrapped up in how do you run your club. Uh, so let's move on to to, to people questions. We, we're reader powered today, so I'd like to know how Jack Butlin compares to other goalkeepers, especially England goalkeepers, according to your new goalkeeper radars. James, well, what do you have? Oh yeah, I, mean, I looked at this. I actually missed out the England bit, but uh, yeah, because uh, was it in the Premier League last season? His, his saves were actually above average, despite them going down. This season, his saves look kind of average. Which again, these things aren't necessarily in his in his control. He's dealing with what's in front of him. It's basically in the same range, though. Like he's he's just yeah. slightly above average, and and that looks to be you know his in, in either league. Um, go ahead. And then the one standout thing we've got on our radars was his positioning errors look really quite low. That's a metric that we've derived to try and kind of get and understand. Uh, I think kind of how slightly how aggressive keepers are, but certainly how you know they well basically how well they position themselves and um he he stands out as being someone who you know is pretty solid in that regard otherwise otherwise uh, he he looks kind of average it's interesting because i thought maybe in the summer he'd be he'd be a lock for a move up to the premier league um again keeper evaluation is always tricky and you know you need a you need a slot on your team um but yeah he's he, it hasn't happened he's he's you know retained his position at stoke and we're fairly, um, how do we put this? We're still fairly casual about keeper stuff, but I feel like in my you know workflow or whatever, it has added a lot of insight, especially at the, at the edges. So like really good keepers, you know, almost always match up what you're expecting to see for the ones that you know. And then you go look at the other ones with significant amounts of playing time. And you're like, all right, this guy probably is really good at these things. Or the really bad goalkeepers are also that way. Yeah, I mean it. It, do, it does kind of stand out, and you know, just even just getting the kind of personality metrics of of stuff, p- players like Edison or De Gea, and like you know the things that you understand quite relevantly about them, whether they stay home a lot, whether they come out, whether they whether they're active in team possessions, and those kind of things. Um, yeah, they you know they they really do come out when you when you actually metricize these things, and uh, yeah, it's all about all about. But I think it's the same for all players, really. You know, with the, with the stats, you do. You know, it's not about taking one metric or two metrics. And 
and just making decisions or evaluations on that. It's about getting a getting a picture of of a player via multiple metrics and you know trying to trying to understand uh, exactly what a player does in in the in the whole rather than just within within one aspect of their play. Um, and so comparing to to Pickford, we would say that Butland's probably a better shot stopper. Um, Pickford's not actively bad, but he's not particularly good, especially this year. But even last year, we didn't think that he was he was very good at that either. So like both years, the data is kind of matching it up. We think his distribution is better, um, but you would say that you know Butlin might be a little better all around, and and Jordan Pickford. You know, in the shot stopping, he's got a weakness, but the rest of his play might be pretty good. Uh, Joe Hart, I don't think we need to mention. I think Joe Hart, we can skip. Uh, and then there's like Fraser Forster, who I don't think has played much at all and, and had some struggles, which is why he hasn't played. So Yeah, and from from a broad perspective, that you know, the idea of England keeper, you presume they're just going to pick Pickford for for the foreseeable future. And, you know, unless he went on some horrifically... Uh, obviously bad run he's basically England's going to be England's keeper for the for, you know for the next season or two traditionally England the England keepers is, is, is a job for life <laughs> it's only kind of like in in more recent years that that hasn't necessarily been the case but um yeah it's, it's interesting because nothing yeah what can we say about Pickford he's aggressive and um he's not saving as much as maybe as he could be right now but yeah. yeah. Yeah, and 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 the interesting thing, like I've I kind of posited this uh, on Twitter a few weeks ago. I think that there will be more fan disagreement about goalkeepers than almost any other position, because they will be confirmation biased strongly on errors. Like when we see a keeper make an yeah. error, it it seems horrifying because like usually it leads to a goal. But there are plenty of times where like you know they make a couple of errors, but they do amazing things beyond that. And we're biased against the heirs because that's a position that, that should never see heirs in a lot of people's minds. But the reality of it is there's a whole spectrum of stuff that you're contributing in terms of value. The heirs might be one bit of it. And if you're giving up goals that are heirs, like it'll show up in the data because you're giving up more goals than, than you might expect. Um, but I think that, that fans in particular see the heirs, remember the heirs, don't remember all the other stuff that happens. And I think that that will likely be the biggest discrepancy um, that we generally have in terms of, of output. Yeah, I mean, uh, Hugo Lloris is, is a good example of that. And someone that's in the world of banter, I've seen a couple of comments like, oh, stats won't think Lloris was having a good season and stuff. And it's like, well, you know, look at his numbers. Everything is fine. He's made a couple of errors. He made a high-profile error against uh, Barcelona where he cleared it straight to a... Uh, I can't remember who scored it, Rakitic, I think it was. He's kind of passed it back into the net, and he's made it. He's made a couple of errors along along the way, but generally Tottenham haven't conceded very much. They're certainly exceeding their metrics, and Lloris is definitely part of that. And you know, you'd be hard pushed not to say that he wasn't one of the better keepers in in the world. And you know, this is this is all the stuff that you kind of weigh up but I wouldn't I wouldn't quite be as, as down there are certain parts of the Tottenham fan base that are I think a little bit down on Lloris uh, these days maybe over the last year or so I think I think it's probably better to be slightly more positive than that but and then, you know there's certainly our kind of numbers support that anyway what, what can we move on to now who are some notable guys you were definitely wrong about so I'm assuming this is player evaluation and they want us to uh, to 
to make fun of ourselves. Well, I've got answers here, and these are historical answers. But I'll talk. So I have lots of answers here, and these are actual <laughs> recruitment answers. So we we can we can combine these to to be to tell people exactly how bad we have been. All right, I'll, I'll tell I'll tell you my two because I can do it quickly. Right, Lampard and Beckham. Right, why am I wrong about Lampard and Beckham? Because this is the pre numbers era uh, for me, for me at least. I know you used to sit there watching England, getting frustrated with them. Beckham had some great games where he saved the day and. Uh, was awesome, but I didn't ever think he was the you know the the player that got as well fated as as he was, and I didn't think Lampard was either. Now around the place, around the internet, you can dig out some stats on these guys, um, not to the detail that uh, we have these days. Uh, but if you go and like dig out like assist rates and such like this for players like Lampard and Beckham, if they'd have been part of the stats era, we'd have been we'd have been absolutely hammering the world for, for anyone criticising them at all we've been like these these are the absolute boys they are consistently putting up fantastic numbers year in year out Lampard's the same as, as Fabregas in a lot of ways except for with the goal scoring and then didn't get the plaudits as much for his passing although like he was quite good at it um, and and you don't find many goalkeeper or not many goal, many midfielders that score the goals or have the complete skill sets that that Frank did. Obviously, they both won tons and tons of titles as well. I think Beckham's skill set is actually one of the hardest things. Uh, you can we would obviously appreciate the the set piece bit, but his skill set on delivery from wide is so much better than almost everybody else that you would look at. Um, especially in the modern era where like this is it's fallen off a bit because that's not the style that we play um, yeah and, and he, he he got critiqued for being a bit of a one-trick pony as well a lot, a lot you know the fact that he was just Mr. Crossing and and he wanted to come inside and play central midfield and it was like now nah, you go and do what you do out of the wide mate that's fine and it's like in the bigger bigger pictures he really was very really an exceptional player who, who created an incredibly large amount of uh, of chances for his teammates so for my answer for this question, I'm actually gone back to my stuff from early 2015 when basically we took over Brentford's um, recruitment. And I'm looking at a couple of the earliest lists that I ever produced uh, back in the day on guys that we had on our big board. So basically this is like ranked prospects that we might be able to get and ones that both worked out and ones that didn't. So this is March 23rd. Um, and I'm going to go through the, the forward list that we have here. And I will tell you that I have learned so much since we did this. And I think we were like way ahead of the curve. And actually, you know, a lot of the guys that we really loved that we could afford, you know, worked out and were great. But there were plenty of ones that we were trying to afford and seeing what they, they were. So um, looking at this, uh, I had Mark Uth as a, as a top prospect for us. Uh, probably weren't going to get him, but... He obviously has worked out and played in the Bundesliga. Uh, Vaclav Kadlec, we kind of had moved uh, potentially to, to Mitchelland, and he did move to Mitchelland, but we knew that there was uh, a potential issue behind the scenes in that, you know, he was from Prague and he was going to have to go to like middle of nowhere, Denmark, and that clearly ended up being a problem. So <laughs> that, that didn't work out great. Uh, one that I think a lot of us were wrong about, and nobody understands why, is Borja Baston. Um, he was owned, I think, by Atletico Madrid. Was on, uh, was on loan at that time, and uh, we thought he'd be amazing for us. But I think it was about five million euros was what he was going to cost, which was more than double what what Brentford could pay. Um, and it, it also, like you know, they wanted bigger wages because they knew that he'd probably play for a bigger club. He did eventually go to Swansea, but the year before he went to Swansea, he he was great. He was genuinely great in La Liga. 
and then hasn't done much since then. I looked him up today. I think he's on loan at Alaves from Swansea. And his numbers are pretty good. But again, why didn't this guy work out? And I don't know the answer to that. I, he hasn't even had like major injury problems. Uh, so that was that was a hard one. <clears throat> um, Seb Holler, who I think is the leading scorer in the Bundesliga right now, was was also on this list of like very top tier guys that we would love to get. Uh, so that was a, a good one. Uh, and then Luke Castaños did not work out. Um, uh, I, my guess is that that was uh, uh, sort of behind the scenes stuff. So that's like center forward. Um, attacking midfielder, uh, we wanted to reloan Toral. Uh, we knew that he had some injury problems. I think those have really caused his career to suffer. Uh, but he was great for us. Um, Hakim Ziyech, uh, back when he was at Heronveen, I believe, he was uh, also like one of the top tier guys. And then um, Basar Halimi, who we basically signed, and uh, he didn't show up on the plane to sign his contract uh, and have his medical. And he's gone on to have some pretty good seasons in Denmark, but that was... <clears throat> That was another area where, you know, the background reports and, and his dad being a little bit OTT, um, you know, caused some problems. Um, wide forwards, we had El Yanusi, who is now at uh, Southampton. But this was, you know, three years before that, even before he moved out of out of uh, Norway. Um, Jan Bach is also on there. And then, you know, we kind of looking at a young player that we might be able to forward in Fred Onyedinma, uh, who hasn't really worked out. I think he's back in League One again, uh, owned by Millwall. And time's kind of running out on him. Um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll look at a, a couple more because like, it's a really interesting period. I can, I can do these fairly quickly, but uh, goalkeeper, we knew nothing about. We had Daniel Bentley on, a, on an early list, ended up signing him a year later. Um, and that was kind of a constant process of, is this guy good enough? Do we think he's good enough to send on to the, the goalkeeper coach? Uh, and then he only wanted guys that, that were English or, or sort of fit his style. So that was, that was an area that we didn't have enough info to, to even give useful feedback. Uh, defensive midfielder. So 2015, <clears throat> we really liked Mokocho, uh, Vajinovic, and Josh McEachran. And Josh McEachran was on and alone, uh, I think, alongside Vajinovic at, uh, at Vitesse. Um, the, I wasn't as down on the Dutch league in terms of finding guys at that point as I probably am now. I'm much more skeptical now. And you need to pay much lower prices because the risk factor on those guys that they won't turn out good, uh, especially in more physical leagues, is very high. Uh, but still like Mikocho back then. Then when Brentford were going to sign or actually signed him two years later, I was like, I would not sign him now. Like he's kind of past the age curve that we looked at and his his stats are are slowly declining. The trending is is not the way that we would want it. So like I think that was much worse at that point. But then the guy that we very nearly signed and, and really loved is a guy named Ule Selnes. Um, and he was, I think, at Rosenborg, played defensive midfielder, quite tall, uh, left-footed, and, and really good set-piece delivery. And he's been um, kind of a stalwart at Sanatien, who ended up buying him for the last few years. And, and Sanatien are like the fifth-place team in League, League One. So you know, we probably got that one right and just didn't quite get him over the line. And then um, finally, centre-backs. So centre-back is the thing that <clears throat> early on I would have said like very early on, it would have been very difficult to, to profile center backs. And I've kind of always been cautious about this, but I think that we, uh, we found the way to do it, that we were pretty happy with guys that, that we were able to surface. We used some stats that we thought were really important. We still do uh, to find the guys that we think are probably uh, the ones that we want for the style that we want to play or for um, just like good bargains. Uh, you need to be able to do certain things. Uh, so we, we had um, Willie Orban, 
who has been a, a constant Bundesliga player, and Dominic Heinz, uh, both of whom like we would have taken in a heartbeat. Uh, they went on to, to much bigger teams, and uh, I think they've been... I think Orban is still at Red Bull Leipzig. I'm not entirely sure where Heinz is at the moment. I haven't looked at them lately. Uh, Johan Barbe was a, was a guy we looked at and thought that he would be a, a very good young depth signing. And I still think Barbe is is a, is a good center back in the in the championship and, and could potentially play at a higher level because he's got the, the ability to distribute the ball from, from deep. Um, Bielen we signed, and then he immediately blew his ACL, which was pretty terrible. Uh, <laughs> And then there are a few guys that, that I have on this list that we just couldn't afford. And um, uh, Gross, uh, Pascal Gross, who was coming at Ingolstadt at that time, uh, he was huge on our list. Ziyech, we didn't think we could afford. Um, and Haller kind of moved out of our ability to afford range. So, like, it's a bit good and a bit bad. Um, Amavi was on that list and, and kind of always kept going up that list. He was eventually bought by Aston Villa and then also blew his knee. So... And not great <laughs> but like there are things that you can't afford the biggest guy that we got wrong i think was philip hoffman and and hoffman for us we actually signed him um because our our manager at the time was playing center forward in training and we knew that we were selling andre gray as well so we basically had zero center forwards and we had to spend money to find some guys that could play the position hoffman was a german u21 who scored some amazing goals he could actually move pretty well for a big guy through the center of the pitch uh, the the red flag on this was um, some late sort of, um, yeah, he didn't perform that well through the whole season. He fell off a little bit late, but then also like a personality report that said that he was a bit tough to motivate and could be a bit lazy. And we're like, well, you know, we can, mo- this is the coach's job. He can be motivated. We can do that. Like he's, there's so much talent here. And, uh, and it didn't work out that way. And, and I think over the years, I started to pay more and more and more attention to the things that the coaches would traditionally say, oh yeah, this really matters. Character really matters. Like um, work ethic really matters. Well, that's true. That's absolutely true. And uh, you know, these early days, as I look back, I, I ask myself why some of these guys didn't work out. And some of them are fairly clear. They they either had sort of you know poor personality reports that say that you know you might want to avoid them if you can, or injuries. And those are the two things that you know are definitely out of your control. But if you do the the work to figure out what the personality is likely going to be, you can at least err on the side of saying most of these guys are really good guys and we think that they're going to work hard for us. Yeah, and I think especially like you know when you've got players coming from another country with a new language to learn, um, like it can take time to adjust. So that's something I noticed yesterday. There's been a bit of talk about Naby Keita's form uh, in at Liverpool. Uh, someone someone mentioned yesterday they thought they hadn't learned the language yet, and obviously he did. obviously he was telegraphed to come to England like a year in advance. He thought well, maybe he has. We could have learned the language a bit, but yeah, these adapt- times for adaptation, uh, you know, can vary for players, and it's quite common that we've seen players have a quiet first season in 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 Premier League or in England, and then come good the second season, and possibly communication and you know personality are all part parts of that mix. I mean, they certainly are, but um, yeah, it's it's interesting trying to trying to fit uh, fit players into uh, you know entirely new environments that. Uh, you know they're unused to, and you yeah, know England's a funny place at times. You know you got to take a bit of getting used to. <laughs> you know Ted, you're a, you're a, you're an alien so to speak. 
Anyway, anyway, anyway. Right, what next question we got? Everyone asks us... I have no idea how to respond to this now. It's supposedly (laughs) in my native language, but you wouldn't be able to understand it. No, no, no. You'll settle in eventually, Ted. (laughs) Right. um, Let's do the Dennis Suarez question. I think that was the Everyone asked asked. us, four people, I think, asked us about uh, Dennis Suarez. Like, is he going to be... What what could he do for Arsenal? Is he a good player? And I trolled everyone yesterday by putting out his radar for this year, which he's he's played approximately 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and it looks really good, but it tells you fuck all about what you should expect from well, the future. It, this is a thing I had to like, I had to kind of like read around on him because because he's barely played. He's had like four starts in two years, and I can't say I've paid much attention to him beforehand. But like looking at the looking at the kind of descriptions of like what kind of player he is, he feel he feels a bit a wobi, but maybe a bit a bit of a wider wobi, and um, but probably lacks a bit of goal output. He's never really scored that many goals. Um, I guess what what are Arsenal thinking? I mean, they have Lacazette, they have Aubameyang as kind of goal output. They already have Iwobi, who who doesn't score that many goals, and someone like Mkhitaryan, who doesn't score that many goals. Perhaps they are, these guys are a little bit more central, and they want someone who can, they can actually stick a little bit wider. I've noticed people criticise Arsenal for a lack of width this season, and they've had to get it out of their fullbacks at times. So, you know, possibly that's the idea behind Suarez. I don't know. What do you think, Ted? I'm not super confident about this. Um, I, I think he's fine, but not necessarily good. And what Arsenal really need wide is a sort of pace and dribbling, but creativity. Is this enough? I, it always depends on the money, right? But allegedly, Arsenal are, are struggling to find cash in, in various ways. Um, and you know the outgoings aren't great. They haven't invested young. They've got some very good academy players that they're trying to fit in, but it's not a good, it's not a good era for like Arsenal talent at the moment. So I, you know, is this the best that they can do right now? Possibly. Um, it's not a bad one depending on what the price is, but there's certainly. You know, you're not confident about it, is how I would say. Yeah, not to make the you know obvious comparison with the Andre Gomez deal, who you know, if if Dennis Suarez was being linked with Everton or someone of that kind of standing, you'd be like, yeah, well, that's I can understand that. Arsenal, maybe it's a little bit, I don't know, it feels slightly un, unambitious to to be. Get, <laughs> my to get my worry past, is that he's not any better. Reserves. My worry yeah. there is that he's not any better than Theo is at at Everton right now, which isn't really what you're looking for. Yeah, that, I think that's the thing, isn't it? You know, I mean, he's he's, he's not too old. This that's this that that going for him. But I, I, st- I still don't like buying buying these kind of Barcelona reserves as a as a concept. It's, it doesn't sit well well with me. Um, ooh, ooh. Uh, so I think I asked this in a in a radar yesterday, um, and <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was laughing at somebody else's uh, opinion. But Andre Gomez, would you pay what Everton paid for Gilfy to sign Gomez on a permanent? Yes, no. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I can go and find two midfielders that are like perfectly capable of doing a similar job to um, Andre Gomez for that money. And that's, okay. not, that's not me being arrogant. I just, I just genuinely think that he hasn't shown enough to like say, say that he's moving the needle. I'm sure I could find two midfielders for like twenty million a piece, and like that they could fit into a kind of Premier League midfield. Um, so if you really love him, maybe you pay. 30 million but that's like the top end 
Yeah, and you have to really love him for that. You know, well, maybe they do. Maybe they think he's perfect and this is his home and, and he really clicks with Silva. And, like, that that has some explanation. But, like, yeah, if, if they're over 30, like, I think that they're getting a bit fleeced, even even with any sort of Premier League premium. I don't know. Everton are a weird team at the moment. It feels like they're not... And they've got all these... So many players that are trying to, like, fit in, into, into, into the team together. It's a bit kind of mercenary is the wrong word isn't it but it's a bit kind of like everyone's turned up from wherever and everyone's their squad is stupidly large stupidly large like them and West Ham were the two teams that you're like look you need to move guys now and it almost didn't happen right they've got Belasi down in the championship but that that squad is just like so enormous and that should be their focus right yeah that, like, this get, was another get the question wages out it? get the guys out like fix your your squad uh you're not going anywhere so like yep. unless you find good bargains for for the future like focus on the right now which needs to be outgoing and offloading wages and recouping some of the the bad transfers that are made over the last three years yeah and this is it someone asked who should they buy in january i'm personally of the view they shouldn't buy anyone in january they should literally just just take care of business and just set themselves up for the summer because like as you say they're not going to get they're not going to get relegated they're not going to finish in top six they'll finish somewhere in the middle it'll be fine again a transition season where you try and stabilize your squad after an incredible amount of comings and goings across the last 18 months or so just plan for crying out loud plan Yeah, play the guys that you're not sure about so that you can find out more about them or the guys you are sure about, like get rid of them and, and you know, take the take the hit. But this is the part where, you know, as an administrator or an owner, you have to be brave enough to suck this up. You're like, look, we're going to take bad press for the next four or five months and that's fine. Like we're not going anywhere. Uh, this is the, one of the things that Matthew Benham is awesome at doing. He looks at it, like looks at the probabilities, looks at the league. It's like, okay, well, this is the plan. We're not buying anybody. We'll look to, to sell some guys. If uh, if it comes up that we've got a bargain that we can get, we will take it. But otherwise, you know, we'll, we'll move guys on as much as possible and we'll rethink in the summer based off of where we are and where we expect to be. And that's it. And that is the way that you need to operate in order to be an effective football club. And it sucks if you're a fan because it's very frustrating, but also like, you know, it's not your money. I mean, it is that you're playing to go see them. You can watch them from home. You could do any number of things. You could check out for the rest of the season. And that certainly tells them something. But, you know, if, you're, if your team's pretty good, like Everton are pretty good, even if they're slightly dysfunctional, like that's basically where you expect to be most of the time. So we're not going to go anywhere this year. Uh, I would prefer that we make better long-term decisions so that we have a chance to, to maybe even eventually get back into the top six, top four-ish. Uh, but in the meantime, like I'm okay with us not being, not making signings this the rest of this season because like we don't need them we're fine what are we going to do yeah exactly i mean go and spend 30 million on and yet another like um you know a, a central midfielder and they probably could do with a new central midfielder somewhere along the way but all that does is you know put people you know someone like tom davis i don't know how good is tom davis right now does anyone know no nope. i mean he, he gets some minutes in the here and there I, th- I read something Calvin quite Lewin. recently suggested that he'd gone backwards a little bit. Yeah, look, what does Lookman get minutes uh, at the moment? You- DCL, like these yeah. are all guys that are on the books that you might want to be good contributors going forward. You need to know a lot more about them, and if you're not going to find out inside of your team, you need to. So here's here's a good point. Um, Arsenal have just moved Ben Napper, who I think was one of their first team analysts, up to uh, well, sort of off to a, a lone manager rule, and um, you know. Liverpool have had this for years. I think since like 2014, maybe even before. Uh, Fergal Harkin at 
Manchester City have has been around since at least that time period as well. Chelsea, I think, have had Paulo Ferreira and somebody else doing that type of job. Obviously, they've got more loans, and obviously it matters a little more for Arsenal now. But Arsenal have just like killed so many kids' careers by having bad loans. This is like really important. If these young players are your future in a number of different ways. Either you sell them on the transfer market and you get maximum value, like Liverpool continue to do. They, they sell like not great players into, into the lower leagues or second-tier yeah. Premier League clubs, and they keep you know finding new money. Like That's a big deal, and you need to maximize like their progression in order to make sure that you can get money out of them and that people have enough confidence uh, that they can you know, buy them and not think that they're, they're, they have no idea what they're getting. Um, so it makes a lot of sense. It's nice to see Arsenal kind of finally do this, but it's not a new idea. It's been around for ages, and and these other teams have been on top of it. Um, I, I think Manchester United do this via their academy manager for the most part, um, but like those guys have other things to worry about. It's it's kind of a full time role, especially if you want to to maximize all this money that you're spending on your academy into the tra- transition from academy to first team somewhere. Like that's a, an important role for them. It's just like managing a portfolio, isn't it? I mean, that's essentially what the job is. But Oh, um, my God, James, you've taken the love from the game. You've ruined <laughs> it for everyone. We're just trying to get everyone a good, happy future. And all the ones well, that well, can We care about can. these kids, right? This is, It's not about managing portfolios. It's managing the careers of, of young kids who deserve to have the best chance possible. There, we've reinvigorated the, the, the listeners there. In a portfolio. Anyway, right, let's move on. <laughs> Asshole. <laughs> right, someone says this was a silly question, but you... You highlighted it so you clearly want to answer it and it says just wanted your opinion on deliberately kicking the ball out of play into the final third and then looking to press high from the throw and it seems to be effective but many people oppose the idea due to it being aesthetically pleasing question question from mr n warnock no yeah so, <laughs> so this is the opposing final third um it's basically the idea of the rugby kipping, kicking game with um with football and a lot of teams actually uh, across the continent have kind of started to do this sometimes from kickoff. <clears throat> yeah, I've definitely seen it from kickoff recently. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's absolutely fine. I think it actually goes back to this idea. Uh, I mean, Daryl Morey has, has been saying this publicly. Sometimes they say, I think that coaches trade off too much on position of the field for having the ball. Hmm. And in football, like there are arguments both ways on this one. And I think that, uh, hmm. I I generally agree that it's not a bad idea. How good an idea it is is dependent on your system and your personnel and a bit about who you're facing. Like if you if they're just going to pass through you as you try and high press, like that's problematic. Uh, we actually can can measure a lot of this based off of the the pressing data that we have and what happens on outcomes of possessions. Um, so you can find out more. But I I don't think it's a bad idea at all, and I I would expect that you'll see more of it. Over the years, that's my take. I feel like evaluating, um, yeah, you know, types of possession in different parts of the pitch. Like, uh, I don't know, if, you know, clearances. Like, can you can you aim clearances? If you can aim, you know, if, if you've got enough time to aim your clearance, maybe think about where you're putting your clearance. Um, it's as long and as hard as you can, like towards an opposition corner. Uh, those, I'm thinking on top of my head. I'm not saying that's a good idea, but like I, that I kind hate of this thing. So much late in games where good teams just like chuck the ball back out. Mm. I mean, you you guys, you, you spend so much time playing out of your own your own third, and and now like you're just clearing the ball. Wouldn't it make sense to just like get it to somebody in space and and yeah. Anyway, 
But anyway, let's think. We'll think about that <laughs> another time. All ideas to it. Right, what have we got here? What type of? Which is kind of related. What type of defense get a lot of stats bomb pressures without corresponding tackles, interceptions, and incompletions, and vice versa? And I had a very quick look at this. We 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 got pressures obviously as part of the stats bomb um, data set, and they are interesting. And but there's 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 certainly more work to do in in kind of like uh, getting as much as you can out of them. Uh, I had a quick look at this just to answer this question and. As a percentage of all defensive events, pressures tend to be between. So if you add up all the you know tackles, interceptions, whatever, and then all the pressures as well, pressures tend to be somewhere between like 57 and 61 percent of all defensive actions. So that's a hell of a lot more uh, defensive actions than you you get just generally with your common or garden data set uh, and such. I couldn't find a specific trend as to team type uh, here, although um, I did spot. I think it was like Newcastle. Was it? I've got it here. Newcastle. Yeah, Newcastle, Brighton, and Watford all skew towards kind of pressure events, and they're all they're all teams that have like a high volume of just defensive events in general. Um, Burnley last year. So yeah, I think Burnley last year. But then, as a percentage of defensive events, you've got Bournemouth, who don't have very high percentage of events. So it's shades here. You, you can't take too much from it. Just just uh, just from the top of a. Uh, just from the top of the list kind of thing. Burnley this season actually at the opposite end. So, Conceptually, um, you know, a pressure is an event. Someone closes down another player to force them to do something with the ball. Like That's a pressure, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have any impact whatsoever on everything else that's happening on the pitch, except when it does. <laughs> so it, it's not directly tied to it. Um, you know, I, I watched Alexis Sanchez on Arsenal for so many years just run towards a guy and close him down because this is what he's done in Chile and this is kind of what he did at Barcelona. And if the rest of your teammates don't do anything, that just means that that guy passes the ball mm-hmm. and he makes an easy pass and now, now suddenly the ball's going the other way. If the rest of your teammates are also in a pressing situation and they do it systematically and they've got like a zonal press, then that particular pressure can be very valuable. But you know, by itself, it's an event that happened and we're recording it and that's useful. Uh, systemically, which is difficult to see in even tracking data, you need to know a lot about where the pressing traps are and what's going on. Um, you know, systemically, that may or may not have value, and we don't necessarily know that. We can figure it out kind of from top down, other information, how often they're getting regains. Uh, and we've got that, that data too. It's just by, you know, the individual event doesn't necessarily say anything else about the whole of the system. Yeah, I mean, I guess it'd be lovely if if this stats bomb as an organisation was just like yeah all we do is analyse our data, <laughs> but we're also a business that does lots of other things. So <laughs> yeah, um, allegedly we, yeah we could we could we could uh, answer all these questions if that was just our job. But we we you know we're a multifaceted organisation. There's lots of different things. I've got a couple of pressure Easter eggs actually. Well, one pressure Easter egg. Um, Bernardo Silva, I, I saw the the running stat. Good old running stats. Uh, uh, for the Liverpool game, he was uh, recorded as I think someone said more uh, more distance than any other player this season. He actually recorded the second most pressure events via our data um, uh, of any Premier League player this season uh, in that game, and more than twice as much as any other City player in that game as well. So, wow. so Bernardo Silva, who literally uh, got uh, you know a decent amount of uh, credit for that game for being everywhere. Uh, he genuinely was. He, he put up a hell of a shift, and I think I looked at City's uh, seasonal um, 
pressure events. And obviously, they don't. City don't necessarily record a lot of pressure events because they've got the ball all the, the time. Ball. Yeah, and it was actually unusual. I think that was the first game, Pep game and, uh, at City in the league that they actually had less of the ball than the opposition. Um, but I think seven out of the top ten uh, pr- pressure uh, guys per game were, they were Bernardo Silva games. So he is the one. He is their main guy, undoubtedly for um, applying pressure or. Um, being someone who's you know kind of lead, leading that charge, and that that game was I don't know 30, I think it was just seventy six pressure events we logged for him in that, that game. game was, that game was so good. It that was. Game was so good to watch. <laughs> and the next and next highest he's got all seasons about forty. So you know it really was a kind of like outlier. Give us everything, burn, and he did. But yeah, a little Easter egg there on the old precious. Uh, what's what have we got next? Here we are. This is city related. I don't know what to say. Think about this question, Ted. I haven't really. Looks at him. Will Pablo Mafio ever be good enough to sustain a right back spot for Spain seniors, or is he just all right? He's only twenty-one. Right, exactly. Um, so at Girona, quite liked him. Also, the season before that, loved him. Thought he was good enough to play back up for City. Still do. Um, the problem is he's gone to Stuttgart, who are <laughs> an absolute mess behind the scenes. They 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 signed Korkut as a manager to dig them out of a hole last year. And then they kept him on this summer and then obviously had to make a change at some point. So the question is like, you know, what's going on with him and how much does that impact his output? And actually this goes as a segue into another question we got. Um, your output is dependent on the system that you play in and a bit of the team and also the league that you play in. It's all a bit fiddly and that's part of the art of all of this as well as the science. Um, my take on Mafio is that in the right system, maybe with a coach that's going to continue to teach him, he probably could be you know, somewhere between third and fifth best right back for Spain. Um, not sure that he's going to be the top tier, but you never know with injuries and things like that. But if if you know Stuttgart don't turn around and, and he sort of stays there, like he's probably going to basically get stuck unless his agent you know tries to, to move him out. And uh, you know, I think Stuttgart are in the relegation spot, so like that's pretty challenging as well i think that from a, a potential perspective he's still quite good and he has a, a reasonable runtime before he kind of hits his peak and gets forgotten but if he just stays playing for teams that aren't great then that will you know it'll lose some of the shine and some of that will probably be his fault too he's 21 he's got he's got a full season in spain behind him and now he's you know a season in the bundesliga I'd be I'd, I'd I'd be at least not too negative at this juncture, but I haven't got a window into you know where he's going to get to. I think that's a good segue into the the Rashford and Iheanacho comparison, which was something that we I mean I wrote about I think a couple of years ago. Uh, both very young players still, and you know who kind of has more potential and, and who would you want to sign? Iheanacho is the the one that I think is hardest, but like we'll we'll start with the Manchester United stuff because. Like, Basically, it's impossible to tell what's going on for players that are playing for Jose Mourinho in his third year. Uh, Chelsea, Chelsea, you know, shot the bed, and then immediately the next season they won the, the league title. And you're like, hmm, which one of these is the truth? Well, they're both the truth. And and you know, not having a manager that you don't want to play for anymore is a really big deal in football. And sometimes, despite the fact that we think that that manager might be good enough, uh, changes need to be made. For Rashford and Martial especially, Martial's fallen off a lot this year versus last year. And, you know, 
what can you say about it? Almost nothing. Like everything else before Martial says that he's going to be one of the best young wide attackers in the world. This year, eh. he's got the thing is he's got he's got a few goals this season, hasn't it? So that perception hasn't kind of permeated outwards. It's like he's okay this season. I think the wider perception of Martial is anyway. Well, so so this is one of those spots where we're we're leaning the other way, <laughs> and we're like, yeah, he hasn't been great this year. We don't know why. Uh, hopefully, he's reinvigorated with new management and a bit more freedom. Ianacho's the tough one though, because like last year, Ianacho's underlying stats are actually quite good, and at City they were amazing. But he's powered a bit by being part of a super team, uh, and you know, being in the right place at the right time, having creators around him. Now that he's he's been at Leicester, this year especially, it looks like he's he's struggling. We don't know why, but last year actually looks pretty good, especially for a young player, um, you know, on a, on a middle-tier Premier League team. His numbers look like, I love this player and I want him to be part of my future my future team. This year it's not. And, you know, parsing that out when I don't watch Le- Leicester a lot is is tough to do. Yeah, I mean, dude, shots have just disappeared for him this season. And that, I mean, I wonder about Puel's system again. They're a little bit kind of, you know, a little bit pragmatic. I don't know. I mean, if you're a striker in this kind of system, it might not be, might not be the kind of most comfortable position to exist within. And that kind of relates to another question we've got about Palace, which I think is um, not to divert too quickly, but it's it's just hard to. If if you're a striker in a in a system that doesn't create loads of high value chances, it's going to be hard to kind of juice your numbers and get 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 rolling. It's uh it's just not easy. Well, yeah, and I I we talked about Sorloth thinking he's a pretty interesting young signing and can't get on the pitch despite their injury problems and no one knows why. Uh, again, players are at least partly a product of the system and the situation that they're in and the coach that they play for. And some of those coaches are able to get a lot out of players, even without a ton of talent. And some of those coaches like suppress talent massively. Uh, some situations do too. Uh, Palace right now, there's no. Their job is to stay up. That is their job. That is what they're supposed to do. It, it sucks if you're a Palace fan because it's been that way for ages, and there's almost no signs of life at any point. But there's also no one that's going to fix it for you. Like Roy, Roy's team plays defense and you hope that they score enough goals to to stay up and that's that's really what they're structured for the the point at which they might have done something different was when they they hired De Boer and then they didn't actually sort of follow that up with any talent he needed to play that system he fired him in very short period of time and now you're you're back here and from an ownership perspective they want to stay in the Premier League and, and keep the money and you know maybe you can watch a championship team that attacks a little more uh, if you're bored well, this was a question. Who should Palace get up front? Is there anyone available to fix their issues? I just don't think there is, because I think it's the system. Like the only players with any XG last XG volume last season for them was Zahar and Benteke. Benteke's injured this season, and Zahar's dropped back. Um, well, and Benteke couldn't score, right? I don't know yeah, if it's yeah. yips or the system or people were fouling him or what, but but like literally, he's the only guy like you could, they could run up front who even get chances. I mean, they just don't seem to be getting chances of anyone else. Presumably, he generates some some himself. But quite often they've set up this this year with like a four four two with Zaha and kind of Townsend as the as the front two. Now, all this says to me is like you know you you compare wingers playing up front as as nominal strikers like who they who are they providing for? They both like to have questionable shot selection at times. There isn't necessarily anyone in the box. You know, players when they have played a, a kind of more regulation striker, are they really cre- 
creating for them. I don't think Zaha, I don't think Zaha's re reputation as a creator is is skewed very heavily towards the fact that he can dribble a man rather than that he can set up chances for for forwards. So I don't necessarily think that's ideal. In midfield, there's I mean Max Myers coming in uh, is you know someone who you know you'd hope could could create something but there isn't a lot of creativity in midfield at all they're a functional unit so you could put like any striker up front for palace and i think they still have uh, to a degree problems in getting like decent quality chances i thought this next question was great so thanks to whoever sent sent this one but you have to buy one player from each of the teams currently in the relegation spots who do you go for well, i've got my answers sat there and ready have you got any ted <laughs> Or would I'm you like me to your, provide I'm mine? looking at your answers and I'm wondering if you think one of the teams currently in the relegation spots is not. Oh yeah, I didn't even look. I just presumed it was <laughs> I just presumed it was who who is in the relegation spot? How did Burnley get out of there? How oh, well yeah. I thought Burnley so, were in there. So that was <laughs> Sorry, that was that was my follow up. I was like, wait. Does he think Burnley are the relegation spots? They were. Spots? They were. At one they point. were. Southampton. Well, there's loads of Southampton players. I mean, I'd buy. buy All right. So, so we'll go through your first two, and then you you get a, a pass for the moment. Well, but I did like your choice. Um, okay. So, so I said Session on out of Fulham because obviously that's a no-brainer. You just yeah. You, anyone will have a crack on him. Why not? I said Billing out of Huddersfield because he keeps coming up. And I, when I look at defensively things, he looks like he's quite. Um, He's quite active. He, I, I don't know. I'm not going to proclaim to be an expert on Huddersfield's personnel, but billing someone who looks like he's, you know, could be a squad man elsewhere. And then I said, um, I said Heaton out of Burnley just because why not? You know, let's test him. See if he is a see if he is a he is the keeper that he looked look he might be last season. Um, but yeah, Southampton. I mean, Hoiberg. You get Hoiberg, wouldn't you? As another central midfielder. Probably, yeah, the the sort of highest upside of that lot. Um, not not Stephen Davis, not Shane Long. <laughs> no, no, There's I, a lot of knots in, in yeah. that group as well. Um, so yeah, from from Fulham, I think you've actually like they've got a deep squad of some pretty good talent. So like the one that I definitely don't want is Andre Sherla, and didn't want him in the beginning of the season, and don't really want him to be playing. Uh, just his attacking choices as a wide forward it's just so bad um Cessnion is is the obvious choice i still think andre zambo angisa like looked like an awesome prospect when we looked at him um last year or back in yeah january of last year even quite a bit before that so he was really exciting and he would probably be my second choice but you know why hasn't he fit in i'm not sure we can't forget uh, the Mitch wine aldum scenario can we he rocked yeah. up at newcastle and obviously had you know reasonable promise there and you know Newcastle went down, and he went to Liverpool. And oh, he's not Liverpool's best player, but he's you know performing in a, a league-leading midfield. So yeah, sometimes it just doesn't work. And no, Mitrovic is the other most obvious choice on that list. And the only issue with Mitro is if you can't motivate him, he's gonna kill you. So <laughs> is he? Yeah, is he figuratively? Why am figuratively. I not first choice? Says Mitrovic. Yeah, next yeah, next so. week. Next week, mate. Next week. <laughs> uh, so so on Fulham, that's my choice. On Huddersfield, my favorite name player is Zenka. Uh, <laughs> I think I uh, to to oppose you or just choose a different person than you. I actually thought Steve Mooney when they signed him looked really interesting, or Mounier, however you pronounce it, and uh, it's very difficult to figure out why 
nothing happens at Huddersfield. Uh, so I'm assuming that a lot of it is systemic and not talent choices, but we don't know that. Uh, so that that's a different choice for you on that one. You liked Billing, who I think also is a good choice. Um, <laughs> Heaton, Heaton or Pope, all, both seem fine. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, at, at Burnley, if you're if you're making choices there, and at Southampton, you know there's talent in that squad. Like Nathan Redmond playing centrally uh, for somebody, a team that wanted to attack, quite interesting. Hoiberg, I think, is good. Lamina actually could probably slot into as like a backup at, at Spurs with some some time. Like so, there's enough depth there that I I think Elianusi might only be Championship level, but we're not sure. Uh, right, is that, have we got any more questions, Sam? I I think that might be it, everybody. Yeah, why not? Oh, how good is David Brooks? Oh right, yeah, this is good. <laughs> how good is David Brooks? I think he's good, but I'd send him to the gym, and that's it. <laughs> I also think he's good. Uh, I'm not convinced on his hair choices. But, uh, <laughs> All right, and we're not going to do any political jokes there. That's for the other podcast. Yes, there's, that's the two mics. They they have a Patreon. You might want to. Yeah. And uh, and that's it for us today. So thank you for listening to the Stats on podcast, powered by reader questions and a little bit of transfer nonsense. Uh, yeah, we'll be back next week with more. Cool. Bye.